And now, deep thoughts. You are listening to Deep Thoughts, a podcast that explores aspects of the Christian faith a little more deeply. I'm your host, Matt Schantz, and I hope you had a Merry Christmas and have been able to, you know, enjoy some time with family and friends and a bit of rest. Most of all, I hope you've been able to savor the gift that Jesus is this Christmas. The fact that he is Emmanuel, meaning God with us is a staggering reality. And now, with Christmas past, uh, 2024 is nearly upon us. New Year's is the next thing. And now we are in full New Year's resolution mode. Now, statistically, about 10% of those who make New Year's resolutions actually complete them. Uh, with the vast majority of resolution makers failing either within the first week or the first month. And so actually my hope with this episode is to give you some inspiration for forming habits that lead to growth in godliness and joy in Jesus and are hopefully the kinds of rhythms that are sustainable for you because they are so rich for the Christian life. And so to help me set the table for those things, to have a conversation with me about it is David Mathis. David serves as the senior teacher and executive director at DesiringGod.org, is a pastor at Cities Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, and serves as an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He is the author of several books, including Workers for Your Joy and Habits of Grace, both of which are subjects of our conversation. And so now, here's my deep conversation with David Mathis. Well, hi, David. Thanks for coming on the Deep Thoughts Podcast. Matt, great to be here talking with you, brother. So you are a fellow pastor. I love talking with other pastors. Um, I'm busy. You're busy. Um, but you are, you are one of these pastors that uh, that on that makes me feel lazy. You know, I, re- <laughs> I read your bio. And, it, and so here's a little bit. You are a pastor in a church. Um, you serve as an adjunct professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary, serve as the executive editor of Desiring God, and you write great books. So uh, well, how do you do that? <laughs> I'm actually in a season of life here. It feels like it's the least busy I've been since high school, maybe, or college, maybe college. Um, I, my life is actually pretty simple in the sense that my full-time job is Desiring God. Okay. And I'm a lay pastor at a church with a team of eight other pastors. Okay. And so we do a lot of teamwork. It's not just me taking care of this church. I'm not even on staff at the church. Oh, okay. I'm a volunteer pastor at the church. And then an adjunct at BCS is a very small thing. I, I, I teach a couple hour class in the spring and Piper and I do the preaching class together, which is very small. He does all of the theory and I do the practicum. And so uh, mm-hmm. it actually is a pretty simple life. It just sounds better in the bio than it really is. <laughs> okay. That's, that's helpful to know. I feel less lazy. Um, but, but you got a few things going on, a few irons in the fire. What's your biggest passion in ministry? My biggest passion in ministry. 
Um, or sweet spot. What do you just feel? What's well, if, if we were to talk about like theological loci, like theological topics, mm-hmm. I love Christology. Mm-hmm. So uh, of the books I've done, the one I like the most is called Rich Wounds. And it's just meditations on the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Uh, my favorite thing in the world to do is take biblical texts, meditate on them, linger over, over them, especially when they're about Jesus, and then unpack the riches of the glory of Christ for people. I, I think so often yeah. we in the church even can be interested in all these other topics. And there's so many wonderful topics and the life and death and reality of Jesus and reign of Christ touches all these topics at the periphery. And sometimes we can be content with just very thin knowledge of Jesus and all his glory. I mean, this is what the early church spent the first five centuries and more on is dealing with these texts about Jesus, who is Jesus in his full godness, in his full manhood, in being one person. And so when I have a chance, that, that's how I start off every day is meditating on the Gospels. I got a little Bible reading plan, and it works through about a quarter for each gospel. And so I've always got a little gospel text in the morning and something from the epistles, something from the Psalms, something from the Old Testament. But uh, that's how I want to start every day is I want to see Jesus. I want to know him. That's what feeds and strengthens my own soul. And that's my favorite thing to do in ministry is commend Jesus and uh, and talk about his glory in specific, tangible, maybe surprising ways. Hmm. That's great. And and that is really evident in, in your writing that I've experienced is, is just drawing out um, uh, the beauty of Jesus. And, and that's, that's a real wonderful theme of desiring God and their ministry as well. Like y- you all hold that so well. I, I just want to say thank you for, mm-hmm. for your contribution to desiring God, desiringgod.org. That is a resource that has blessed me and equipped me immensely over the years. So thank you for, for your part in that. And, and magnifying Christ. Um, well, I'd like to spend time talking about spiritual disciplines with you. But before we get there, yeah. uh, I'd love to chat about your latest book. Got a copy of it here. Workers for Your Joy, uh, The Call of Christ on Christian Leaders. Now, here's another cool thing about Desiring God. I got to like have a lunch with the, uh, a couple of the staff members a, f- a few weeks ago. And one of the guys took me aside and he's like, if you want a book by any of our authors, just let me know. And, and we'd love to gift that to your church or whatever. So, so shortly after I got a box full of these books, this book that oh. you've written last year and, uh, and our pastors are going to work through it starting in January just to be encouraged and challenged. And so again, just thank you so much for, uh, for the resourcing you do for the, for the church, um, Thanks, leadership in the church is an incredibly important topic. And there have been a ton of books written by it, by, by some really fantastic author theologians over the years. So what's the impetus to throw your hat in the ring? What, what, what was the impetus for your contribution? Yeah. I mean, if it was up to me, I think I'd just write on Christology and the Trinity. Um, but there are these, these real life needs. So, uh, with Bethlehem Gallatin Seminary, uh, I remember years ago, Tom Steller, who was Piper sidekick for all these years, he started uh, the, the seminary institute there. Firstly, firstly, it was the TBI, the Bethlehem Institute, and then it grew up and became Bethlehem College and Seminary. So I remember when it was becoming officially college and seminary, this is around 2010 or so, maybe this meeting was in 2011 or 2012. 
uh, Tom Steller wanted to get together and I had all these delusions of grandeur. Oh, maybe he'll ask me if I would teach systematic theology or maybe I could teach New Testament and show them my Greek skills. And he told me there's an eldership class. So we, we take Alexander Strauch's eldership yeah. book and workbook yeah. and we walk the guys through it as an aspect of practical ministry. It's just on eldership. Would you do that? <laughs> and I guess just because I was an elder and uh, it's something I was doing in my real life, <laughs> I didn't have the credentials to teach the theology or exegesis classes I would probably enjoy teaching. And uh, so it, it came from a, an exciting and in some ways humbling, but but genuinely exciting assignment to mm. get to spend class time with these guys who aspire to ministry. And so I think since the fall of 2012, I've, I've been in class with these guys at Bethlehem College and Seminary, either in their second or third year. They're training for ministry. It's in the middle of their context of seminary training. And we talk about practical issues in eldership. We, we, st- we started using the Strock book. And over time, I would kind of add things into the, into the class. Basically, let the class be a practical theological catch-all like these guys want to talk about multi-site they want to talk about multi multiple services what kind of questions do they have about pastoral ministry let's just put them on the table you know almost like a luther table talk kind of event where we just what do these guys really want to talk about that it has to have a practical nature in ministry and so we did that and and one thing i found helpful over the time this was the maybe the big discovery for me along the way is that those elder qualifications in first timothy three they are really relevant. I mean, this mm-hmm. is not just a list that Paul just shot off like a quick email. I think we, we think of writing today as happening so fast because paper is cheap, you know, e- electronic emails are free. And so we think you just write, you know, write something quick and shoot it off. In the ancient world, it was super expensive to produce an epistle, to write the epistle, you draft it, you edit it, all the materials that went into it. But Paul didn't do anything ad hoc or haphazard. It was never haphazard. Uh, and there is a brilliance to these lists in First Timothy 3, in Titus 1, that essentially overlap in different church situations, but essentially overlap. And after a while, we started structuring the class in terms of the qualifications. And with each qualification, there is so much to say other than just what that word means in the New Testament, but to make applications. And so as I begin to think through what practical issues do these guys training for pastoral ministry, what practical issues did they need to address? It was amazing that all of them mapped onto one or a couple or multiple of the elder qualification. So it's, it's an immensely practical list to be able to look at the qualifications and say, all right, what does this mean? What does Paul mean by it? What does it mean in Christian theology and new Testament theology? And then what are the applications to ministry today? And it, there's astounding relevance and so we began to structure the whole course that way. And then the book is is set up that way to take the elder qualifications and not just define them, but to press through them for present application in 21st century pastoral ministry. Hmm. So here's the origin of the book is the classroom yeah. at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Oh, I, I'm looking forward to getting all the way through it because that, that if, if it's been built that way, it's going to be such an applicable resource. So that's fantastic. But why do you use the phrase? Why do you title it workers for your joy? That, that when, when people think of their elders, think of their pastors, um, those, those individuals in those positions being there for the joy of the congregants is, is often not the first thing they'd think of. So, so, so tease that out a little bit. Where does that come from? Well, uh, in terms of theological commitments or labels, 
I don't mind calling myself a Christian hedonist. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, meaning that at, at least are you allowed, are you allowed to work for desiring God without saying so? <laughs> probably so. Yeah. Well, I mean, our affirmation of faith is Christian hedonist all the way through, and and by that we mean we mean two things, not just a single step. Sometimes it's thought of in terms of a single step. The single step being that God is the object of our joy. God makes us happy. If you'll turn your gaze to him, turn your eyes to him, you'll satisfy your soul. Absolutely. That's true. Yes. But that's just not the whole of Christian hedonism. The whole of Christian hedonism is now the next step to say, and you know what? God means to be glorified in our joy in him. Mm-hmm. Not only is God the one who satisfies my soul, but my satisfied soul glorifies him. It makes him look great yes. when yeah. I see him as 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 my treasure, as my mm-hmm. all satisfying focus, when I see Jesus in his glory and love him and delight in him, then he's he's magnified. He's glorified. So joy then is not a peripheral thing in Christian ministry. I mean, if God made the world, in a sense, to make his church happy in his son, that really relates to pastoral ministry. So there, there's a theological way to get there. But then the very language of being workers for the joy of our people I mean, that's just from Paul. Second Corinthians one, he is explaining his complicated travel decisions to the Corinthians and why his not coming there doesn't mean he doesn't love them. And in that context, he says, then this is chapter one, verse 24, second Corinthians, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Mm. So it, it, it's at least mm. apostolic. And I think it is an expression of Christian ministry, not only apostolic ministry, because of where you see it in First uh, Peter 5, that the elders should do their work uh, willingly and eagerly, not for shameful gain uh, and not domineering over those in their charge. Same language as Second Corinthians 1. And then actually I preached Hebrews 13, 17 yesterday. And if I was going to go to one text about pastors being workers for the joy of their people, I'd probably go root it in Hebrews 13, 17. So it goes like this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. So Hebrews is saying to the church, church, you want advantage, right? Mm -hmm. You want gain, you want benefit, He's, he's appealing to that good desire in the church to have advantage, have gain, have better, have joy. And he's saying, if you want to be happy, then you want your pastor to do their work in such a way that you'll benefit, which is joyfully, not groaning. Happy pastors help make happy churches in Jesus. Groaning pastors uh, at least compromise the fruitfulness of the work, if not spoil it. Mm. So the pursuit of joy then in Hebrews 13, 17 is a essential dynamic in healthy churches among healthy pastors and healthy churches that churches want to be happy. And so they want to do what they can to not wreck their pastor's happiness. It's not the church's job to make its pastors happy. It's also not the church's job to make its pastors miserable. (laughs) Don't make your pastors (laughs) miserable. Let them be happy. Mm. So if pastors get into the work with aspiration and desire, 1 Timothy 3.1, the one who aspires to the office desires a good work. It's a good work. Pastors start from desire. They're seeking their own joy in a holy sense in pastoral ministry. And the encouragement to the church is there, 
as much as possible, let them do their work with joy. That will be to your benefit. And so then the part for the pastor is the, the joy that I seek in ministry is not a private joy. It's not a selfish joy. It's not the kind of joy where I gain and the people lose. It's the kind of joy where my gain is in their gain. The joy that I find in ministry is the joy of the people in Jesus. So it's a, it's a profoundly Christian hedonistic pursuit of joy type vision of ministry. And it doesn't just come about theologically, but it's rooted in some of the clearest texts about leadership in the New Testament, like first Peter five and, and uh, Hebrews 13, 17. Hmm. Was there, was there a pastor elder or two who really modeled this for you? Like when you wrote the book, you kind of constantly had them in mind. Did you, have you witnessed experience this for yourself where you saw that kind of joy in your pastor that led to, um, led to that kind of advantage for the congregation? Uh, I mean, it's, so I, I came to Minneapolis 2003 and was at Bethlehem until 2015. So 12 years at Bethlehem Baptist Church, okay. uh, six of those as an elder. And I saw that as a congregant under the leadership of that team of 30 plus elders. And then I saw that in my colleagues and got to be part of that as, as one of about 38 or 40, whatever the number was there during those, during those six years. Um, and so th that was definitely a place where it's been worked out. And then it, um, it's been, it's more striking to me perhaps because it's recent or because it's more specific in recent years, because I've been part of a pastoral team that only had four and then had five and then six and seven and eight. I've, I've been a part of pastoral teams that were between four and 10 over the last nine years in a smaller church setting. We, we went out as a plant from Bethlehem Baptist in January of 2015. And to see okay. these things, to see that vision of God in his glory as satisfying to the soul and the heart satisfied in God as, make, as making much of him and glorifying him, to see that worked out at Bethlehem was an amazing thing. And then to get to see that now in a church plant over these last nine years has been significant. But when, when you ask about somebody in particular related to this book, uh, it's actually plurality that comes mm -hmm. to mind. So uh, a dear brother that I, I moved to Minneapolis with him in 2003, his name's Ken Curry. He's a campus outreach director. He was in Greenville, South Carolina. That's where I met him in college. He came to Minneapolis in 2003 to bring this college of ministry called Campus Outreach to Minneapolis and to Bethlehem Baptist. And Ken Curry loves and commends and models teamwork in ministry like no one I've ever seen. I just, I, I so much of my uh, love of and and thoughts about the dynamics of teamwork in ministry I've seen lived out by Ken Curry. So I, know, I mean, lots of guys in reform community and elsewhere talk about the importance of plurality in leadership. You know, all these instances in the New Testament always mentions elders, plural, and we can talk about all these good, healthy things, uh, reasons to be part of pastoral teams. And many guys don't have that luxury and they ache for it and long for it and pray for it. And they're in circumstances yet where God hasn't given it. Uh, so we don't, we don't take it for granted, but in particular, Ken, uh, I get to see him model what a beautiful thing it is to serve as part of a team. He loved team dynamics and he thought very practically about the work of eldering in, in team dynamics. You know, the new Testament it's this little tiny book, you know, Jesus didn't think that elders needed a book of order 
like to tell them what to do about their future decisions. He gave some qualifications that are significant and taught the gospel and the story of Acts and you have the epistles. And yet so much of what we work out in church life in terms of particular proportion or emphasis or timing is worked out in the plurality of the elders in kind of the collective wisdom of godly men who are embedded in a particular congregation saying, how do we lead this people well? Uh, when do we talk about this topic and how do we talk about that topic and how do we deal with this strange sheet? So many of the questions are not just answered with pointing to a simple verse. Oh, there's the answer in Colossians. I mean, that happens sometimes. We got to keep our Bibles open. But so often it's men who are shaped by the scriptures, who are the ones who are teaching the scriptures, interacting in sober-mindedness and pursuing wisdom to uh, have pastoral leadership and oversight in a local congregation. That's a great answer. I, I, I completely agree with that. That, that is the, the model. That's the vision. And it's, it is an absolute joy uh, to see that worked out in plurality. It's a safeguard as well um, to, to, um, yes. to many of the challenges that come from, you know, one catalytic leader kind of steering right. everything, um, which, which leads to maybe the elephant in the room when we talk about um, leadership today. Um, and you note uh, the cynicism people have about leadership in general in your book and, and leadership in the church specifically. Um, and not without reason, due to the amount, due to the amount of scandals and abuse of power. Um, also, simultaneously, um, how quickly we're able to hear about scandals that happen, right. and it'll happen in distant places that maybe in other times we just wouldn't hear about. And those are the things that um, certainly make the news. Um, but you write in the preface of your book, the prospect of submitting to a leader drastically changes when you know he isn't pursuing his own private advantage, but genuinely seeking yours. I, I just love to hear you interact with those two things a little bit. The cynicism mm. uh, that many folks have around leadership that comes naturally. And yet the reality that we all need leaders, logically, we need leaders. Um, we need to be led uh, first and foremost by God, but secondly, by biblically faithful, Christ-exalting leaders. Can you just interact with with those themes a little bit? Yeah, you know, one is, you know, in taking our bearings from God's word, from scripture, you know, that being the place that we stand, <laughs> it's just so plain that uh, <laughs> there is a chief shepherd and overseer of our souls who rules the church in his singularity. And he he chose to appoint a plurality uh, of leaders. So, so there being a layer of leadership and that being a grace, uh, Ephesians 4 talks about he gave the pastor teachers as a gift. So whatever kind of cynicism there is, and, and we need to be aware, like in, in some sense, uh, unless you're living under a rock or trying really hard to cut yourself off from it, uh, you're going to be exposed to what generational suspicions and tone and, and uh, prejudices, those sorts of things, just from interacting with other people. Even if you're not a highly online person, you're going to get that from normal interactions in the world. So in one sense, we can't help but be aware of that kind of general mood of suspicion and cynicism about leadership in this generation. Um, and I, I think it's helpful to, to be aware of that. And as you, as you go to a context to, to know, you want to win trust, not presume trust, but, he, but here's the thing. The new Testament doesn't give a vision for elders presuming trust. It actually gives a vision for elders winning 
trust. So mm-hmm. it, it maps onto this context. It's not like in the first century, uh, humans were necessarily gaga about submitting to any leader who came along. I mean, there's a sense of winning that trust in the New Testament itself. So in that Hebrews 13, 17 passage, ESV has it as obey and submit to your leaders. Obey there is, it's, it's patho, means persuade, convince, uh, win trust even. And so for the, for the pastor's part, for the elder's part, their job is persuade the people, win the people, you know, garner their trust, engender trust. And the people being so won and being so persuaded by their leaders who love God's word and care for them, gladly submit. There's this this partnership of leaders who don't presume on the people, but are eager to win and persuade the people. And then people who put aside native or generational cynicism and learn to have a disposition to yield to their leaders who want to be led, who own that. And so uh, I I think that vision's right there in the New Testament. I, I don't know that we're in times where it's impossible to lead, but we're much more similar to maybe first century times than say the 1950s or something like that. And in terms of that vision of pursuing our own gain in the gain of the people, not the loss of the people, or uh, not pursuing a private benefit, but pursuing a benefit that redounds to the benefit of the people that we serve. I mean, that's so stark in what, Ezekiel 34? Ah, shepherds of Israel, you're feeding yourselves. You ought to have been feeding the sheep with, Mm. with force and harshness. You have fed upon the sheep. And then that that whole vision of Ezekiel 34, God says, I will come and lead my sheep. I'll send my servant David to do it. And we see now how God himself could come and how he could send his servant David at the same time in, in the person of his son. And so that's the vision Jesus, I mean, of all, of all people, God himself in human flesh, he came not to be served, but to serve. And give himself as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus said, the Gentiles lord it over. Let it not be so among you. Become as one who serves. So God himself in his son, in human flesh, has modeled a certain orientation that is no less joyous, but all the more joyous for us as leaders. And we get a chance, we get the joy to imitate that and seek to echo that in pastoral ministry. That's great. Well, we're going to move on to um, this uh, this other book of yours, Habits of Grace. But before we do, um, there are a few pastors, elders uh, who would be listening to this. But for the most part, it's folks who are a part of a local church. How would you invite um, congregants um, as they think about leaders in the church? Uh, how would you encourage them uh, in terms of what to expect of their leaders? Um, maybe how to pray for their leaders? Uh, what would you say? Well, I, I think I would root it in uh, that in the life of the local church, the first and foremost identity of all the people is sheep, not shepherd. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, Jesus says in Luke ten twenty to those who he has sent out and they've seen Satan fall like lightning. They've seen these, you know, supernatural powers unleashed through their ministry efforts. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the demons are subject yeah, to you. Right. Rejoice. Your names are written in heaven. So uh, maybe one, first and foremost, for a congregate to think like, think of your pastor as a fellow sheep, <laughs> pray for him like that. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, don't think of yourself in this 
what lowly category with this low ceiling as if the elder qualifications and Christian conduct aren't very relevant to you. I mean, so I, I love how Don Carson talks about the elder qualifications as being remarkable for being unremarkable. Yes. <laughs> like things That's like great. not a yeah. drunk. Okay. Every Christian should be not a drunk. I mean, all of the elder qualifications, self-controlled, sober-minded, respectable, have a good reputation with outsiders, not a lover of money. All of these qualifications are relevant to every Christian. There is a distinctive one for one and a half, not a new convert. If you are a new convert, you can't not be not a new convert, but in pursuing humility, you're pursuing what that qualification is getting after. And the other one is there, there's a teaching ability requirement right. in the context of the particular congregation in question, you know, relative to that congregation, there's a teaching requirement for pastor elders that isn't required of Christians, of all Christians, but it's relevant. I mean, all of us teach. Those of us who are parents mm-hmm. teach children. Uh, Titus 2 talks about the older women teaching young, younger women. And it doesn't say that the older women shouldn't do this. Like maybe some of them do and others don't. There, there's a presumption that, well, all the older women, by the time you can't get to be that level of maturity, you're going to be able to teach the younger women. And we all teach each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So I think what I would say is, uh, one, uh, don't think there's this fundamental division in your church. Like the leaders are up here and you're way down here. First and foremost, we are we are a flock together under King Jesus, and He's appointed some eldership, some over shepherds who among the flock. First Peter five talks about they're among the flock, not over the flock, and in a way that is a different identification. They're among the flock. They're leading the flock by His appointment, and I'm a, I'm a congregationalist, so uh, by by the affirmation of the congregation, and uh, pray for them in the categories of. James chapter three, peaceable and sober-minded and sincere. That, that's, that's a great, in James chapter three, that list of virtues is a great thing to pray for leaders and for yourself. And here's the thing, as you pray for them, as you think about leadership, uh, those are qualific- those are aspirations for every Christian. So I hope that many Christians would want to learn and grow about the New Testament virtues that are required of elders so that they too might grow in the very things. And that's part of the function of, of elders. They not only teach and govern, they're examples. That's, that's 1 Peter 5. Not domineering, but being examples to the flock. The pastor elders should be models of ordinary Christianity that all of the flock grows into. Mm, well said. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay. I, I, there's just so much more I'd love to dive into, but, uh, let's press on because this is, this episode's releasing late December, right. um, into that like new year's resolution zone of time. And uh, I just think it'd be super great to talk about, uh, your book habits of grace. This is the first book I read of yours. And I want to advocate for the concept of spiritual disciplines, especially into this new season, start of Jan- uh, start of 2024, um, just to kind of take some stock and say, hey, like, what are the rhythms in my life? What are the patterns? Where are areas of focus? Where does my time go? And are these the kinds of things that will help me grow and mature in my relationship with Jesus, in my usefulness in the kingdom? Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about your book, Habits of Grace, and the topic of spiritual disciplines. Um, Again, this guy, I think you're very Christological, as we talked about earlier. The subtitle of your book is 
enjoying Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. Now, I think some people might see at first blush joy and discipline as like oxymorons. Uh, why is that not the case, David? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I know that I can't change the world and have people talk about means of grace rather than spiritual disciplines. I mean, that's, that's just, that's been the category. That's what people talk in. I'm not out to change the language of spiritual disciplines. It's just, I want to go means of grace in a sec. (laughs) It it seems to be given for now. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it just goes back to the late seventies with uh, spirit of the disciplines at Dallas Willard celebration of discipline as Richard Foster and yep. in Don Whitney's book, which is of a whole different stripe because it's reformed all the way through and you know, he loves the Puritans from the 90s, uh, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. But yes. we can't, we probably just can't change the, the categories. So sometimes the connotations for me is like the sense of, oh, I need to, I, the, the, the accent of disciplines is on what I need to do. And there's, there is stuff for you to do, but where you put the accent, uh, could be a very different thing. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I I, I agree with that. There's a point of emphasis there, right. That seems to land on me and my doing. That's right. That's right. That's a little bit, or that's full on contradictory to Christianity, which it's all of Christ. Yes. That's right. So even in, you know, being willing to take the language of spiritual disciplines, I love having it point to Jesus. So we can talk about means of grace in a minute, but means implies an end. I want to put the end out there. I want to be clear about the end. And when you, when you're, when you're clear about the focus, the goal, I want to know Jesus. I want to commune with him. God himself, who has put on human flesh, who lived among us, died, rose, ascended, is seated at God's right hand. So glorified humanity on the throne of the universe as the God man who is accessible to us by the power of his spirit, bringing to life his own word in the Bible. We want to commune with Jesus. You can know him. You can commune with him. And so I want to invite you into that. Call it discipline. Call it means of grace. Whatever it is, call it knowing Jesus, enjoying Jesus. And so I I love to, to cast all of these what exercises that we think of as a, a, a kind of extending our own energy, whether it's scripture memory or reading the Bible or fasting or prayer or church, I really want to put the corporate dynamics, the corporate means of grace on the table in this discussion. We can think of all the things we do, but it helps to go beyond that and think, here's what I'm getting. I'm getting Jesus. I'm having joy in Jesus. I'm getting to know him and enjoy him as the great end. And uh, so that that has been real and experiential in my own life, helping me overcome what native aversions <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to the term or to various, mm-hmm. various things to think of the end. And I, I love commending that to people. I want to join, join me in it. That's great. Yeah, that's good. Uh, can you, uh, some, some listeners might not be familiar with the language of means of grace, but can you explain like what means of grace, habits of grace, what those are? And then it'd be great for you to, um, uh, to just tell us a bit about the habits of grace that you focus on in the book. Yes. Yeah, so I think actually for me, the first time I ever encountered that term means of grace, it does, uh, when J.I. Packer wrote an endorsement for Don Whitney's book, he says something to the effect of this book is about what the Puritans called the means of grace. You know, the doctrine of the means of grace has a long history or something like that. And I'm like, oh, it does. You mean people have been doing spiritual disciplines before 1978? <laughs> really, really have. 
And in the Puritans, oh, they're talking means of grace all the time. And so to, to come at it from a different angle, instead of starting with me and what I do to get to this place, all right, to start with God, yeah. the God of all grace, who uh, overflows in infinite blessedness and bliss and happiness to make the world and redeem sinners. I got abounding in grace in Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit that he would let us know by the grace of his word, the channels in which he means to keep giving us grace for the Christian life, to keep filling our tanks. Like he lets us know about the pathways. This is almost like a whole Bible doctrine about how God reveals himself and sustains humans, uh, namely his word. His word is so important. So now we talk about the means of grace. How does God continue to extend his grace to human beings on a daily basis so that I might be strengthened by grace, nourished by grace, that the, the ever emptying tank of my soul might be refilled by the grace of God rather than me trying to muster strength from elsewhere. Yeah. And so God reveals it by his word. His word is just massively pervasive in his revelation, with it, which is his word. So God continues to extend grace to his people through his word. And he gives us this amazing call in prayer over and over again from the beginning of scripture, from Genesis 4 through the end, he calls his people into prayer. So hear my voice and my word and and take my ear, receive my ear in prayer. And then he always does this in a corporate context. And so others in Christ, fellows in Christ are also means of grace for the Christian life. So I summarize the means of grace as word, prayer, fellowship, hearing God's voice in his word, having his ear in prayer, and then belonging to his body. And i specify that as in the covenant fellowship of the local church You're not just relationships you kind of float in and out when it's convenient but covenant relationships where we have committed to be the church to each other in the hard times i mean the, the the flow of the means of grace in the easy times is significant it's worthwhile and it's life-saving in the hardest times when we've committed to be the church to each other in the moments that are least convenient so uh, I would talk about the means of grace in terms of word, prayer, and fellowship. And then just the way I use the language, I think about habits of grace then as the, the various applications, the various habits we cultivate in our life to access those three channels. So in my life, how am I accessing God's word, prayer, and fellowship in an ongoing way, in a kind of matrix of grace that would sustain and strengthen and give health to the Christian life. And I, I found this helpful in terms of there have been seasons where I felt overwhelmed by the potential list of spiritual discipline. So I start listing all the things I should be doing, you know, just related to scripture. I need to be reading it and then meditating on it and memorizing scripture. And you get to prayer and you got individual prayer for all these people. I need some kind of corporate prayer. And I want to pray on the go as I go throughout life and various times of prayer and fasting. I don't know, you know, where's fasting going to go in life? Uh, should I be doing any kind of journaling? You start listing all these potential disciplines oh, that yeah. have been talked about, you know, in, in, reasonably as good spiritual things. And uh, after a while, I just can't check all those boxes. Like I got a job. <laughs> I got other yeah. things I have to do in life than just do spiritual disciplines. And so boiling them down to those three central means hmm. that God means to continue to 
strengthen our life through his word and prayer and fellowship, then I can think in various seasons of life and based on the bent of my personality and how God shaped me, I can ask myself the question, am I availing myself on a daily and weekly basis of his word, of the amazing gift and opportunity of prayer? And then what are the habits in my life in relating to others, fellows in the Christian life? So I hope that is a kind of simplified rubric or matrix for self-evaluation and then for the cultivation of habits in a new year, perhaps, among other times. Oh, it's really helpful. It's really helpful. I think it helps make it accessible. I, uh, it's interesting as our pastoral team this last year, um, once a month, we would have just a different pastor's meeting, just different agenda, essentially agendaless, <laughs> except for the fact that, um, uh, we would look at a chapter of a book together and one pastor would share about a spiritual discipline. Like, and mm. so uh, it was nice. fascinating, it was really, really great. And you got different personalities on the team. You know, we got like 10 individuals in the room and focusing on different things and, you know, silence and fasting mm, and yeah. you know, having this one pastor who just like loves fasting. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> and yet, and yet so inspiring to hear him say that actually there's breakthrough opportunities in communion with the Lord mm. where this time happens where that typical nourishment your body gets from food when you're lacking that and yet the how attentive then you become of like I have hunger pains fix my gaze on Jesus yes. hunger <laughs> fix yeah. my gaze on Jesus and and this sense of surrender like Lord like I'm I'm here I'm 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 here for you I'm I, I'm willing to do this you're worth it and just just some of the some of the amazing things that happened there uh, one of the pastors uh, just sharing about scripture memory and and in the process, or probably done now, just memorizing the book of Ephesians mm, yeah. and, and just working it through and the difference that scripture memorization would have for him as he meditated on the word of God mm -hmm. and how significant it was. Dropping kids off at school, the walk back home. I'm just going to see how far I get in reciting this and right. just mulling over the word as you're walking and mm -hmm. Rich, rich experience, um, but I do. I, I'm so glad you stated what uh, uh, that one piece there. I feel all the time is like I how how you feel almost going back to the disciplines word. I feel like I'm just failing at all of this. Mm. How could I possibly do all these things, or I'm yeah. not doing them all? And you feel you know when that impetus is, it's on me. Right. And so I, I love how you make it accessible to just focus on the word and prayer and fellowship. And then um, on ramps to uh, those things. Now you go on in the book to say, hey, these are much like the qualifications of an elder, sort of like this is normal Christian life stuff by and large for the mm -hmm. most part, you know prayer, the word and fellowship, this is normal and routine in the Christian life. It's, it's not rocket science. It's nothing not to be expected. And yet we're both pastors. We're well aware that, you know, the, the, the flock, the fellow sheep that, that we minister to, many of them do not have routines. It is not the norm to be in the word, to be people of prayer and really like tethered into uh, fellowship in the local church. So, so just pastorally, um, you know, you advocate for the enjoyment of Jesus, you know, being the glorious uh, and, and pressing end um, to these habits of grace. Can you interact a bit with the realities of, of the lack of engagement 
um, in these practices uh, that many individuals have and, and what that does in the life of a church and, and, and just a little bit more access that you'd invite people into to, to a rationale for why these are truly such life-giving, um, Jesus-exalting, relationship-driving uh, mm. entities in our lives. You know, the, uh, I, I wouldn't assume that, uh, they're easy for pastors, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, pastors living in the, in the modern world and filling up so much of our lives with content through our phones or televisions or podcasts. I mean, so we, uh, uh, a lot of people complain about being busy or this or that. And, uh, but it's interesting to go into your phone into that app that counts the number of minutes that you've used the phone and what the different oh, apps you've used. Yeah. Phone. So, okay. Hey, you want to talk through this together? Like, are you yeah. really as busy as you think? So, so that I, I just got to interject for a second. I, I actually, this, here's an indictment. I, I preach from my, I, I use my iPad. It just like magnetizes to like our pulpit. So it's just mm. there. It's really, it's really simple. It's, it, it's, it's worked well, but I'm preaching, I think in our 9am service, when I'm preaching, it's just the timing of when it tells me my weekly screen time yes. flips onto the top of my iPad during the process of preaching every <laughs> week, just sitting there as this indictment as I'm preaching the word of God to my congregation. I'm like, oh, Lord. Right. It is. Uh, right. That is some that is a trip when that thing rolls through every week. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's like funny, I, right? I was on Microsoft Word writing the sermon. I wasn't on YouTube for all that. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Bible app the whole time. That's right. Well, I mean, I think that's a, uh, in one sense, you know, sometimes we, we we look into these these two dimensional screens and and we think all the bad stuff in the world is happening through these two dimensions without kind of taking a step back and saying, are, are we really spending all this time looking at screens? That may be one of the biggest issues uh, going on in our time. And especially to the degree that the amount of time there, if it's taking away from face-to-face -face relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ, if it's yeah. taking away from prayer, is it taking away from an unhurried, lingering meditation on God's word? Has it sped up the, the motor of our life? in such a way that we can't slowly linger in God's word such that it would really change us and not just kind of go in one ear and out the other, but kind of get down into the heart and shape the way that we feel kind of form, form us on the inside. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, that's a big calling in our day. I, you could say it too much. I, I, I we try not to say it too much <laughs> at our church, but we don't want to leave that undone either, but we don't want our people swimming in this fishbowl of our present technologies and not realizing, you know, you're in water, you're in a certain age right. and it's good to be aware of that and to set up some really clear analog commitments in your life so that your, your whole life doesn't become over digitized. I know you can use the digital for spiritual purposes. Uh, and that works better when you're supplementing with some really good analog face-to-face -to -face like stuff uh, in your life. Maybe even, go, maybe even reading a paper Bible just so that mm -hmm. notifications don't come up and take you away. Uh, that, that could be a potential uh, opportunity. So we try to talk about our things with, these con with our congregation in a way that uh, 
we don't want it to be the only thing. It's not the hobby horse. It's not the only thing we can say. But for us to live that first in our own lives as pastors and then let that overflow, if we can say a commending word about, you know what? I just love putting my phone in the other room and reading a paper Bible without a timer on and just lingering in a leisurely way over God's word. Would you join me in that? Won't you try that in this next year? Uh, I, I think, first of all, establishing those habits that are countercultural in our own lives will lead to our being able to speak into them well with our people in the right moments. Agreed. Agreed. I, uh, I mean, I learned a really practical little tip. Just uh, I heard it from Wayne Grudem years ago hmm. where he was just talking about Bible reading and prayer and the reality. And this just means you're human, by the way, not that you're a bad Christian, <laughs> You, you, you stop and want to spend time in prayer. And that's the moment that your mind, the floodgates open on all the other things that you should be doing, or you forgot about doing, or you don't want to forget to do later. You know, you're Mm -hmm. finally reading your Bible or you're spending time in prayer and our minds often go to the things we need to get done. And he said, that's totally normal. That's okay. Just so he's like, what I do is I put a notepad, a paper and a pen beside me. And when that thought comes into my mind, okay, I write it down. Don't forget to switch the laundry after this, you know, instead of, oh no, I'll forget it. I just stop the time and off I run. And, and, oh, there's that thought. That's right. I was going to do this thing and, and write it down. And now we'll get back into, that's just, I've found that really, really helpful. It's yeah. such a practical little thing, but it's like, no, my priority is this time with the Lord right now that I'm carving out. And I also recognize that my, my mind can do this stuff to me and, uh, and distract me. And so as a way to quench the distractions, I just write those down and continue on. And mm-hmm. like, oh, that's so great. Are there other little things like when it comes to Bible reading and, and prayer or even ensuring we get up on Sunday morning to prioritize uh, attending church together? I just I just saw something recently about essentially you make the decision to go to church on a Sunday, on a Saturday night. The way mm-hmm. that you set up your Saturday night um, is is really what determines if you go on Sunday morning or not. So like Mm. maybe it's putting out clothes for the kids. If you have kids or um, uh, doing a couple things, make it making a plan with a friend that, Hey, I'm going to meet you at this service. Or it's the intentions you have on a Saturday night so that you see it through on a Sunday. Any practical tips you have about Bible reading, prayer, attending church. um, And then maybe we'll get, yeah, we'll get, we'll expand on that a little bit more. You can do various things, but I, I wonder if to speak just above the level of some particular practicals with, with a principle, I know it's principle, but I think it, it really is practical in all those areas is reward. The idea and the pursuit of a, of a reward, of a joy is so important habit formation. So what would lead you to set out the clothes and prepare well on Saturday night is that you see a joy on Sunday. You're not just going through the motions. You're not just going to do this. Like I bring to mind uh, how my heart was filled in praising Jesus or the conversation that I had. I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss this. So I'll get ready the night before. Or to think about uh, mornings over the Bible. It's not just a box to check to start the day. Uh, like this, I want to, this is a George Mueller talked about the first thing I want to do. My first business every morning is to make my soul happy in God through the word. That's right. And so 
to have at least think explicitly about wanting to pursue that happiness or as you have some at bats and experience that to think about the happiness you have had and how significant it is for your day and for your life to start off your day by having your soul happy in God by feeding on his word. And so to think ahead, to think about the reward, not just getting it done, checking the box, but to think at the level of reward and the blessing received, that tangible taste and benefit of doing the right thing and the joy you experience in it is really helpful in habit formation. That's some, you know, some of the literature in the last decade, two decades, I mean, neuroscience has really taken off in the past couple of decades because MRIs, that's like late 90s. Like we're just starting to learn some of these basics about the brain and the role of reward and habit formation is very significant. So as you come to new year, as you think about forming habits, Think about the joy. Like as a Christian hedonist, I'm commending. Think about the joy to be had in God. Think about the joy to be shared with others in the church and bring it to mind. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Think about the blessedness. Think about the joy and pursue some habits in pursuit of it. That's great. Actually, I think that's a great uh, closer and great call to folks uh as this new year starts. So David, it's such a treat to get to have this conversation with you. I've appreciated your writing for years. Thank you to Desiring God and Crossway Books for giving our pastoral team a whole pile of workers for your joy. We're going to enjoy um, working through that as pastors in 2024. Uh, So thanks so much for the book and for this great conversation. Thank you, Matt. What a joy to talk to you, brother. I want to thank David again and the fantastic team at Desiring God for being so generous with their time and resources. I actually kept David on the line for a while after the recording just to pick his brain about uh, church leadership and some structures and stuff. You know, really exciting things. I didn't want to bore you all with in the episode, but what a resource, what a gift. Uh, he is. Most of all, I hope this episode provided some clarity around church leadership and gave you a vision for joy in Jesus that comes through ordinary means on the one hand, but really extraordinary means of grace from God. So may your 2024 be marked by these habits of grace and, and not as a means of earning some sort of credit with Jesus but as a means of joy and intimacy in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith.